Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, to places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed 380 is recorded live September 6th, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where it is appropriately fall-like weather. This week I am going to be going solo. Mac is going to be unavailable and he can fill you in when he gets back. Uh, and I believe uh, the chat room is telling me that Jim is very busy. I knew that he was trying to do a dive tonight but it didn't sound like he made it. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news first article is out of the huffington post a 95 year old veteran sets a record as the world's oldest scuba diver ray woolery a radio operator for the british during world war ii has served in the royal navy and special boat service special forces and he has also been an avid scuba diver for the last 58 years Woolley set the record last year for being the world's oldest scuba diver. Then Saturday, at the age of 95, he broke his own record. He dived for 44 minutes at a depth of 133 feet off the coast of Cyprus, where he currently lives. Woolley, who attributes his longevity to an active lifestyle, joined a group of other divers to explore the Zenobia cargo ship wreck near the town of was it Larnarca. If I can inspire just one person to get out of their chair and do something, then it's great, he said when he broke the record last year. It's lovely to break my record again, and I hope if I can keep fit, I'll break it again next year with all of you, he told the Telegraph after a dive on Saturday. So let's see, 100 and, let's see, how deep was that again? 133 feet, oh, it was off the coast. That That's a bad sentence right there, especially when you talk to divers. He dived for 44 minutes at a depth of 133 feet. See, it it, it's, it almost makes me think he was 133 feet off the coast. But no, I think he was down 133 feet. And that's pretty good. I mean, that's a, that's not a your run-of-the-mill shallow dive. That's that's getting down there. So congratulations for him. Hope that, that stays as an inspiration to all of us that we can continue to dive as long as we can keep healthy. And here we have, and this one is a little odd. Uh, it's on a PR website, so it's a press release. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, maybe we'll find out as we read through it, but it says, The Great Barrier Reef shows signs, significant signs of recovery. Queensland, Australia is pleased to advise a positive update in the recovery status of the iconic Great Barrier Reef. The Reef and Rainforest Research Center, RRRC, a non-profit enterprising Australian organization has reported substantial signs of recovery for corals affected by mass coral bleaching in the Great Barrier Reef. Milder 2017-2018 summer, as well as a cooperation between science, industry, and governments is supporting recovery of the reef in many important locations. The Great Barrier Reef is one of seven natural wonders of the world and the world's largest living organism, stretching 1,430 miles, featuring an abundance of marine life with over 3,000 individual reef systems and coral caves, as well as hundreds of tropical islands with some of the world's most beautiful 
gold, soaked golden beaches. Yeah, it's, it's written like a PR. Um, let's see. It said reefs around the world were experiencing bleaching in 2016 and 2017. While the northern part of the Great Barrier Reef did experience some severe bleaching, this condition did not affect the entire reef and is currently urged, encouraging signs of recovery at the variety of key tourism sites. Recent photos taken in June and July 2018 show healthy, vibrant coral at numerous locations that suffered during the back-to-back coral bleaching events of 2016-2017, including Fitzroy Island, Moore Reef, Saxon Reef near Carnes, among other locations. They say coral bleaching occurs when coral experiences too much stress. This can be from high water temperatures to poor water quality. And then what they do is they eject their symbiotic... uh, Oh, they hear something. I don't know. Zooxylene. I'm, I'm sure I got that wrong. Losing their distinctive colors. If the stressful conditions persist, the corals will die. But if conditions return to acceptable levels, some corals can reabsorb whatever they spit out and then recover. Relatively cooler 2017-2018 summer in the Barrier Reef has helped many corals affected by the mass bleaching to start the journey back to good health. The Reef Restoration Foundation, a nonprofit social enterprise creating optimism for the Great Barrier Reef through innovative coral reef restoration techniques, established the first ocean-based coral nursery in the Great Barrier Reef in December 2017 to regenerate damaged coral reefs in the Fitzroy Island Carns and have plans to install a series of other nurseries throughout the Great Barrier Reef there. Please report that the first crop of corals have exceeded expectations, increasing in size two and a half times in six months, nine out of the ten corals thriving. 222 new coral uh, fragments resulting from the initial 24 pieces of coral initially harvested. They'll soon attach about 100 of these living corals onto damaged coral reefs at Fitzroy Island. Tourism operators have also reported improvements in conditions of coral at their high-profile dive sites. Quicksilver Group Environmental Compliance Manager Doug Baird said they have been widespread recovery from 2016-2017 mass bleachings events in the regular sites. All of our sites that survived the mass bleaching events have shown strong signs of recovery. They look great now. We are fortunate the effects of bleaching were very patchy. I was in the water a few weeks ago at our pontoon site, uh, again, Court Reef, which looks stunning. There's staghorn corals that are budding out and regrowing. The Reef and Rainforest Research Center, in cooperation with Association of Marine Park Tourism Operators, AMP2, conducted detailed surveys of bleaching levels at key tourism sites around Carnes in 2016, and many of the primary dive sites are not affected by 2016 bleaching. Quite few were quite strongly affected in 2017 event. Fortunately, these same reefs showing strong signs of recovery. It's important to realize that bleaching occurs in multiple stages, ranging from the equivalent of mild sunburn to coral mortality. So when a reef is reported as bleached in the media, it often leaves out a critical detail of how severe the bleaching is and what depth the bleaching has occurred, and it's going to cause permanent damage to coral at that site. The Great Barrier Reef is a very large, diverse coral system and the high level of biodiversity and significant capacity to recover from health impacts of bleaching events. Increased temperatures experienced around the world from climate change means the pressure on the reef is going to continue into the future. In addition, the government and community actions to reduce carbon emissions improve the quality of water running into the Great Barrier Reef. Managers and operators of the Great Barrier Reef will need to do all they can to protect and support their individual sites. I'm trying to look and see if they got any details. One of the quotes says, Saxon Reef, or Saxon Reef, for example, suffered from the bleaching on 47.1% of the live coral 
covered during the 2016 event. Fortunately, much of the bleached coral recovered thanks to better conditions experienced in 2018. However, this recovery is always going to be contingent on environmental conditions. It's been critical that all efforts are made to promote the health and resilience of the Great Barrier Reef. It's clearly a misconception the whole of the Great Barrier Reef suffered from severe coral bleaching and that the reef is dead. That's blatantly untrue. Uh, Sheridan Morris added, we know that the reef may suffer further bleaching events as climate continues to warm, but we have to do everything as possible to help protect our Great Barrier Reef. What, or I'm skeptical, is that this is a PR release. So maybe I just happen to look at this. Uh, let's see, Karen's giving me pronunciation. Zuzan Thilla. So that that's and then uh, I said Carnes or something. It's supposed to be cans, like tin cans. Well, they could spell it that way. Uh, but whenever I see a press release like that, you know that. I just get my spidey senses going and I'm thinking that somebody's trying to sell you something. And in this case, uh, these are organizations who are trying to convince you to come and do tourism because the media reported that the Great Barrier Reef was dead. Yeah, it won't, it won't be back uh, because you know, they've got some angle. Either they didn't research things completely or it doesn't play well. They want to get you excited to drive an action, which is this case is backfiring against these tour operators. It was a Jacques Cousteau said, you, you, you protect what you know. And then this next one from Cosmos magazine, the science of everything. And it's a little bit at odd. Maybe this one's a little bit more general, but it says deep water corals also bleaching badly. Almost a quarter corals at 40 meters down damaged by ocean heat spikes. They say even the deep water corals of the Australia's great barrier reef are not safe from damaging effects of rising ocean temperature, a new study finds. Living at a depth between 15 and 150 meters below the surface are mesophotic reefs, which are thought to be protected from severe bleaching events, like those that devastated the reef's shallow water corals in 2016-2017. Now an international team of marine scientists discovered the 2016 heat spike caused the death up to 40 meters down. It was a shock to see the impacts extended to these dimly lit reefs. According to Pedro Freire of Portugal's University of Algarve, and I'm, I'm apologize, I'm just slaughtering these like crazy. Using remotely operated vehicles to place sensors up to 100 meters deep, the researchers recorded water temperatures before and after the bleaching occurred. They also scuba dived to check the reef for signs of damage once the bleaching was underway. By May 2016, water temperatures in the reefs were a whopping 1.4 degrees Celsius higher than the monthly average the previous three years. Major bleaching and mortality reported for almost a quarter of those deep reefs. The survey also confirmed previous reports of damage in nearly half of the shallow water corals. Remarkably, reefs at 40 meter deep experience the same heat exposure as those at 10 meters, testament to the strong effects of late season warming. Local oceanographic conditions play a major role in regulating water temperatures at mesophotic reefs, and the researchers say deep water currents bring cold water up from the continental shelf, cooling them. However, when this upwelling stopped towards the end of the summer, temperatures rose to record high levels, even at depths. Temperature at the deep water reefs did not drop to 28 degrees Celsius until mid-April, nearly two months later than normal. Damage to the deep water reefs, the severity of coral bleaching was much greater in shallow ones, a sign that the depth still does confer some protection from thermal extremes. The coral species are more susceptible to bleaching, the author predicts, and the shift of abundance of distribution water temperatures continue to rise. 
There will be winners and losers in long-term impact to mass bleaching events on coral reefs and the Great Barrier Reef in particular. So th- this makes sense. Uh, you are, yeah, I agree that you, I think you're going to see some cooling effects uh, because they're deeper down and you know, the, the warmer temperatures won't reach as far down. But we have to remember that different organisms have their preferred range that they want to live in, uh, you know, including purity of water and then also these temperatures. So just because it's farther down, if the temperatures did rise a moderate amount, who's to say that that species likes or dislikes that temperature? It's something that you'd have to study and, and understand. Uh, what I'm hopeful in is that as these events occur, uh, when they do recover, they they maybe they recover with varieties that are more able to tolerate uh, the change in temperatures. But something we'll need to keep an eye out for. And this one's from Alpena News. We just had uh, divers from the Michigan Underwater Dive Club up there near Alpena doing some diving. So this is a timely article. It says the sanctuary is seeking Tuscany Airmen Rex. Justin Bettany says she wants to be able to tell a story that most people don't know and tell it right. Bettany is a maritime archaeologist with a diving with a purpose and the National Association for Black Scuba Diving Scientific Foundation. Those groups have partnered with the Thunder Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary to help recover and preserve parts of airplane wrecks of the Tuskegee Airmen from Michigan waters. Sanctuary maritime archaeologist Wayne Lasardi and Tuskegee Airmen practice off the shores of Mount Clemens and Oscoda in the middle of the War War II. So you have men flying back and forth over the coast of two years, Lasardi said. Unfortunately, like many military trainings, they had accidents, and because they operate over Lake Huron, where they are learning to bomb the dogfight to find targets, occasionally the planes would end up in the lake. And this was the case, Lasardi said Tuesday, while looking at a piece of plane in the sanctuary lab of Alpina with this P-39Q... All the accidents were fatal, and there were two known planes in the lake, and four or five out there that have yet to be found. On Tuesday, the particular plane the archaeologists continued to work on was flown by pilot Frank Moody. He crashed in a lake in Port Hiram on, on April 11, 1944. It was found to the day 70 years after, on April 11, 2014. Lasardi said they awarded a permit to the National Museum of Tus- Tuskegee. That's what I'm, now, now I got it, Tuskegee. Airmen earlier this summer to recover, preserve, and exhibit the aircraft. They're now preserving, preserving the antenna, drive shaft, and door of the plane. Lasardi noticed, noted the intricacies of the recovered parts. It was a radio mast or antenna that went through it. It's probably pine based on the color of the wood and the bigger, thicker lines. It has aluminum on it, copper wire possibly in it, and all those have to be treated differently. Wood has to be carefully because they are a living tree. It has sap and sugars to keep alive. Those cells are filled with fluid. When you bring it up and it dries out, there's nothing inside those cells anymore, and they start to collapse. That's why it starts to crack. What we do is chemically exchange the water in it with wax or sugar water to give it bulk so it doesn't lose its integrity. Underwater artifacts are much better preserved than those found on land, Bettany said. Plus the freshwater lake, too. It's really amazing, she said. I work in saltwater. To me, it's unbelievable to see everything intact. One of the hardest challenges I have right now is remove the mass, the remove the invasive mussels off different plane parts. Before you disturb anything in the lake, it has to be recorded to have the exact context and location. The individual contents or orientation, their association is recorded. Pieces are brought up individually. They're kept 
wet until the conservation process is complete, so they aren't drying out permanently, which makes them deteriorate rapidly. First thing to do is pre-conservation documentation to see exactly what it looks like. Sometimes things are lost in the conservation process, like stains indicate that of something important, you want to record that kind of thing, he said. We have to gauge where all the needles have deteriorated on the gauges, but there's a little rust stains in the gauges uh, telling us where it went down. If you clean it, the rust is gone. You lose that information. Lasardi said the sanctuary has worked through the summer to scan the bottom of the lake to look for airplanes that crashed. They'll take what they find, including the wreck found in Lake Huron, and add it to the exhibit, the Tuskegee Airmen National Museum in Detroit. Bethany said uh, she has been humbled to work on the project with the sanctuary. It's going to be an amazing exhibit. People think, why were they here at all? Lake Huron has mimicked the French countryside, as it turns out. We hope to bring up key pieces of the wreck and hopefully next season bring up more for conservation and display. It's a very special project to be part of. Interesting. Hopefully, uh, I, I like to see when stuff can be brought up and conserved and you know people can view it. And then we have, this is an article from the day, so I think it's a, a very fresh announcement. They said a shipwreck discovery or Windsor man helps find a sunken steamer lost in 1906. Windsor maritime historian, author, and diver Chris Cole has made a significant shipwreck discovery, finding the eight the J.H. Jones, a small passenger cargo ship that sunk off the Bruce Peninsula in 1906, tragically claiming 30 lives. And I'm just getting sidetracked by the image. This is a beautiful 3D image. It says, using a method invented by Jerry Ellison, oh, El, uh, Jerry, Jerry Ellison, Jerry Ellison, 3D imaging of the H.J. Jones was created using special remotely operated video camera lowered towards the shipwreck. Top smokestack lies near midship. So this is a fairly decent-sized vessel. At this point, I have to say that Jones is the most historically significant wreck that I have helped identify, said Cole. This part of a team of divers that made this discovery on Canada Day, but kept it secret until Thursday. Thanks to Cole, research and newspaper accounts from the time the team were able to find the wreckage one hour and 45 minutes after they started searching. Wow, that just does not happen. <laughs> that is amazing. Anybody who, who's spent time mowing the lawn, uh, you, you know, that that is like finding it. You just drove out and you picked it up. Said knowing where the lighthouse keeper Cabot Head was was important because he was there watching it, Cole said Thursday. The lighthouse keeper turned away for a couple seconds and turned back. It was gone. That gave us a pretty good clue to where it went down. And sure enough, pretty much within the line of vision. The coastal steamer went down the storm off Cape Crocker in the northern tip of Bruce Peninsula, November 22, 1906. All 17 passengers and 13 crew members were lost. The ship was based out of the town of Warrington, and all the crew were from there. Cole said because there are no survivors, it has been difficult to pinpoint the ship's location. This is Warrington's worst disaster. Still is, I believe. I don't think there's been anything worse to happen to the town since the, sheik, the sinking of the H.J. Jones in late 1906. Cole uh, became interested in shipwrecks and diving in the early 80s. The captain, J.V. Crawford, was a well-liked man in his early 50s at the time, a businessman in Warrington. The loss was felt for a long, long time by everybody in the town. Four of the crew members left behind 16 children when they died. Ken Merriman, another member of the team, said he had been involved in finding many wrecks, but this one was special because 
they had a the great grandson of the ship's captain was there to experience the find. I've never hunted for a wreck with one of the descendants of the captain or the people that perished in the wreck. We really enjoy finding these wrecks, but when you make a connection with the descendants and the people involved, it really makes it special. Merriman and Jerry Ellison of Minnesota set out on the trail of the H.J. Jones along with Cole after they were contacted by ship captain's great-great-grandson, Dan Crawford. He had learned a discovery nearby of another ship, Jane Miller, last summer and asked if he'd come back and look for the H.J. Jones. The Jones was kind of on our short lift anyway, but being able to make a connection with one of the descendants made it a very important thing to do, said Merriman. Been a dream of Dan as a little kid to find it and helped him do that, so we feel pretty good. When Dan Crawford couldn't make the trip from Warren, Michigan for the search, his 83-year-old father, Robert Crawford, who was the ship's captain's J.V. Crawford's great-grandson and still owns a property in Peninsula, joined the team. Merriman, who had archaeological license issued by the province of Ontario, said they found the wreck in a third pass with their sonar after searching in less than 200 feet of water. Merriman said it's an exciting moment for both the searcher and for Crawford. He was very excited. He never thought he'd find it in his lifetime. The H.J. Jones was a 107-foot-long steamer built by Godrich in 1888 as a fishing tug. The ship made runs from Owen Sound's the eastern shore of Bruce Peninsula to Manitoulin Islands. This is the case of ship we typically call coastal steamers that were all over the Great Lakes, Merriman said. Before there were roads around the lakes, this is how goods and passengers got transported around the lakes and the coastal communities. She was left to Owen Sound to head for, towards Lion's Head with a load of cargo and freight when she was lost. The items on board included brick molding machine, a sleigh, and 20 barrels of coal oil. Only one body from the wreck was ever found, and that of a young businessman from Manitoulin Island named Richard Addison. The record was washed ashore several year, seven years later. On November 1913, it was determined from the J.H. Jones, among items found were three barrels of coal oil, a firkin of lard, a bale of cotton, and some blankets. The day after they found the ship, the searchers took the video of of it with a drop camera, and two days later, Merriman and Cole dove the wreck and shot video of the hull. While the ship was heavily encrusted with mussels, it's largely intact and sitting in the heavy tilt to the port on the bottom of the bay. It was missing many pieces where its doors and windows had been, as well as some hull siding. The team could easily make out features such as the capstan, the stack, the whistle which had fallen over, engine build, pump, anchor, boiler, rudder, propeller, luggage cart, a hand truck, and the steering post. Merriman said the upper cabins had gone on the ship and the team couldn't make out any human remains. He said it's possible that much of the on-deck cargo and bodies would have been washed away during the sinking and over time. Searchers aren't permitted to enter the cabins of the ship. Merriman said... While there wasn't a lot of maritime artifacts or cargo visible, it is special to be able to find such wrecks because of the place and history of the communities they serve. We love these little coastal steamers because they're rich in history, and a giant thing isn't always the most interesting thing to dive, said Merriman. There's always a link to community, and that is kind of cool. Some great photos in the article they show it floating, and yeah, it's a typical coastal steamer. We we see those, and there's a lot of those that sank over the years. But that that 3D image is pretty impressive as well. And then the last little bit of article we have, I'm going to call that potentially cool scuba gear, scuba gear but I don't doesn't sound like they're going to be selling these to individuals. It said an underwater drone watches over reefs and kills coral coral destroying starfish. You can almost call this the coral episode. Um, 
They said it's no secret that the coral reefs are in trouble, and unfortunately scuba divers can only do so much in the way of monitoring and protecting them. Scientists in Australia, however, developed an autonomous underwater drone that could be of great help. Known as RangerBot, the prototype device was developed to be a partnership between Queensland University of Technology, Google, and the Great Barrier Reef Foundation. Although it's been in the works for the past few years, it's officially launched this August 31st. Sea trials are now underway. The drone is programmed using a tablet while still on the surface. The process can be reportedly be learned within 15 minutes. Once submerged, it uses a computer vision system to avoid obstacles and navigate. That system, along with other sensors, also allows it to detect and record reef problems such as coral bleaching, poor water quality, pollution, siltation, and pest species. In the case of the latter, the drone is able to identify crown-eating, a coral-eating crown of thorn starfish with an accuracy rate of 99.4%. When it does, it can inject them with a poison that doesn't affect other reef organisms. Its predecessor, the Cotspot, is capable of doing the same thing. Scientists at the Worcester Polytech Institute, on the other hand, recently developed an autonomous underwater robot that kills invasive lionfish. Tipping the scales at 15 kilograms, or 33 pounds, the 75-centimeter-long Ranger bot, about 30 inches, has a battery life of approximately 8 hours per charge. This lets it stand underwater much longer than a scuba diving, being able to survey considerably larger areas. It's designed to be inexpensive once it reaches production, allowing for widespread use. We believe this represents a significant technology leap in both marine robotics and reef protection, the only autonomous, affordable, multifunction solution for effectively detecting, addressing threats to coral reefs, says Professor Matthew Dunbabin. Our vision is to make ranger bots readily available, accessible to be deployed on the reef where they are most needed and to put them in the hands of reef managers, researchers, and the community worldwide. And this article, which you can get in our show notes, uh, should have some video along with it. Kind of a cool-looking ROV as well. At the front of it, it kind of has a, a really long, wide port, and I'm guessing that is for the vision. They may be doing uh, multiple cameras to help them get uh, a stereoscopic effect. They can use that for depth tracking. They can determine what items are closer and farther away. And then they're doing some probably some uh, deep learning to recognize the species. So very cool. So that does it for scuba in the news. Unfortunately, I did not get a chance to do any diving. We're, uh, as we're recording this show, we're just coming off the Labor Day weekend, which is a kind of a big holiday here in the U.S. Anytime you get a three-day weekend is a good time. And a lot of people go and do diving. The dive club just finished a trip up in Alpena. And then we had some other divers who didn't make it all the way up up there did get in the water as well. And now that all the kids are back in school here in Michigan, uh, I think our Thursday Thursday dives will start to pick up. And I'm, I'd like to figure out a way of getting out and doing at least one of those. I don't know if it's possible to do a Thursday Thursday dive and also record. But it'd be, it'd be fun to try. Maybe we'll just have to record at some other location. But we'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have uh, Derek and Eric and Karen all joining us in there. So if you haven't had a chance to listen live, uh, sometimes that's more fun than actually listening to the program. So we record uh, Thursday nights, usually about 9.30, it seems to be what we're averaging, give or take five or ten minutes. Uh, we use the Discord. And also I think we'll probably start trying to get some more guests on. It seems like we've had a little bit of a dry run. Or a, is that a dry run? Not a dry run. Uh, 
dry spell. That's the term I'm looking for, dry spell, uh, when it comes to guests. So we'll we'll have to go through our list and, and see who we can get up. Oh, and then Karen in the chat room is reminding me the the mermaids, and I have to apologize for that. That was, uh, I just, I've gotten crazy since that, that time of year. It's just been busy. In fact, I'm traveling again for work this next week. Uh, and that's also d- d- impacted some of the recording. So uh, I had caught almost up, and I think we're back to about two-week delay on episode. So hopefully I can get something out again this week. At some point we'll get back to being current. So if you'd like to support the show, we'd certainly appreciate any any amount helps. And we are getting to that expensive time of the year. We have to renew all our hosting agreements. This is where we sit there and you know, have to shake our heads and decide, you know, do we keep this thing going? We will be entering our 10th season. There'll be 10 years of putting the program on the air. I don't think anybody involved, especially me thought we would make it that long. I was I was thinking, may maybe a hundred, maybe two hundred, and you know, some crazy way we'd make three hundred uh two hundred and fifty. But here we are sitting uh nine nine years in and we're at three hundred and eighty episodes. So uh if you're enjoying it, you know, we got plenty of backlog. If you're getting ready to go on a trip, sometimes you can go and listen to some of those older episodes. Three dollars or more will get you early access to the show notes. And I'm thinking about doing some changes up on the website and then maybe keep an eye out on our Facebook page. You know, our website is www.scubaobsessed.com. Look around for the Patreon links on Facebook. We're facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. And we're going to have some alternate ways of listening. And I I need to do a post of saying all the ways you can listen. If you're you're hearing now, you've probably figured it out. But uh, there's more ways to listen than ever before. And actually the audience... uh, since we've started the uh, podcast, has slowly grown. We don't know if that's because we're getting better or just there's more people listening to podcasts, but we certainly appreciate you. And if you can't donate, we understand. Uh, Also on the website, don't forget we have our fan map. So, you know, click around there, look for it. I think it's on the about, and we probably have some links in the bottom of the page as well. Hopefully we'll have, uh, Mac will be back on next week. If not, I'll have to... uh, shake the bushes, see who we can get on the show as well. Cause it's certainly you don't want to listen to me ramble on all that time. But let's see. Lost my mouse here. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a quick episode. So I'd be asking, let's see. Uh, the, the chat room is saying, uh, oh, it was, uh, we only had one person went down to the river tonight. It was high and fast. Oh, and then Karen is, is mentioning in the chat room that, um, uh, for September 15th, she's looking for safety divers and kayakers for mermaids out of South Haven. Okay. Um, so we'll, we'll have to get something together, find some information, see if we can get you some divers. The 15th, I'm out. I'm actually going to be out of town on the 15th. And uh, we, a, a good friend of the uh, show who happens to have his own podcast is having an event that, that day, so I'm going to go and, and visit him. So... Let's see if, if uh, who the plugs be, you know, visit your local uh, dive shops. A lot of deals going on. I, I was just in the Wolves, uh, you know, a few weeks ago and they had some good deal on gear. Uh, they had done some buyout buying, uh, closeout buying. So they had some nice things going on. So support your local dive shops. And you know, we're about time of the year. We start talking about how you dive all year round. And one of the tricks to it is just get out there and keep diving. You know, if you, 
you dive in the summer when it, the water temperature is 70, 80 degrees, and then you, you don't go back in and somebody in November says, hey, let's get a dive in. Uh, if you've not been not preparing for it, you're going to be cold, and you don't need to be cold. You can dive all year, all year round warm. So we'll, we'll cover that in some upcoming episodes. And if Kevin was on, he'd be telling you to go visit your librarians. And we are getting to that time of the year. We'll be doing some library study. And uh, hopefully there's still some time to make some discoveries yet this season. I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah, I did. I have I have gotten in a big lake, but I, I need to get some more time in. I saw that uh, Bob in the dive club looks like they're going to do uh, an Ironsides dive maybe this weekend. So there's going to be some people getting out. It's it's going to be a little rough, it looks like, but the wind will be out of the east, so that should protect the uh, the dive sites that are within a few miles of the coast. You get too far out, and the waves are going to be four to five feet, and you know that that's no fun. That's a little bit it's a little bit too rough. If you if you don't have to go, you have to be pretty hardy to be to enjoy getting beaten up beaten up in those waves. Well, let's go. We're getting to that time of the show, so I. I Probably half of you are getting ready to shut down right now. Uh, I think I did. I did both of those. And this one I may have done. So uh, let's just go ahead and see. There's an elderly couple who is in their old age. Noticed they're getting a lot more forgetful. So they decided to go to the doctor. The doctor told them they should start writing things down so they don't forget. A couple of days later while camping, the old lady told her husband to make a cup of coffee. You might want to write it down, she said. The husband said, no, I, I can remember. You want a cup of, cup of coffee. She then told her husband she wanted a cup of coffee with cream. Write it down, she told him. And again, he said, no, no, I can remember. You want a cough, a cup with cough, uh, a cough, a cup of coffee with cream. Then the old lady says she wants a cup of coffee with cream and sugar. Write it down, she told her husband. And he, again, he says, no, I got it. You want a cup of coffee with cream and sugar. So he goes to get the coffee and he spends an unusually long time outside the tent, about over 30 minutes. He comes back in to his wife and hands her a plate of eggs and bacon. The old wife stares at the plate for a moment, then looks at her husband again and asks, where's the toast? And I hate hate to say it, but that seems to be me lately. (laughs) Yeah, I... I mean, have you done this where you'll be in the living room and you'll decide that you need to go into the kitchen to go get something? You'll get to the kitchen and I'm not even sure why I went in there. So I think this is a crystal ball. I'm just looking into the future. So until next week, go out there and get wet and dive safe. Gotta find my button. Here we go.